November 10, 2023. All material heard on Iris is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. I'm Dave Buzik, and my partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Judith Linden. For the first hour, we'll cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. Then we'll wrap up our broadcast, as always, with Dear Abby. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the Volunteer Voices virus going strong at iowaradioreading.org. Now let's take a look at the weather, and then Judith will cover the headlines on the front page of today's register. Pretty nice weekend in store. Mostly sunny today. We'll have a high around 50 degrees. Winds out of the northwest at 5 to 10 miles an hour. Clouds increase overnight, a low of 32. Winds out of the southeast around 5 miles an hour. Then tomorrow, partly to mostly cloudy at times. Slim chance of a sprinkle in the second half of the day. High around 54. Winds out of the south at uh, 10 to 15 miles an hour, but with gusts up to 25. Saturday night, partly cloudy, low 39. Sunday, sunny. High 63. Winds shifting from the south to the west at 10 to 15, but again gusting up to 25 miles an hour. Mostly clear Sunday night, low 36. And then on Monday, mostly sunny, high 62, winds light and variable. So no real uh, significant precipitation in the forecast for this foreseeable future. Judith, uh, good morning. Nice to see you. Let's take a look at the front page of today's register. Thank you, Dave. Here are the headlines. Um, State football semifinals at the Dome. Iowa's crisis pregnancy center see another setback. And family leaders Vanderplatz rebuffs RNC, says Thanksgiving Forum is on. And I'll read just uh, about this photo um, before I go to one of the others. The state football semifinals at the Dome. And we do see uh, Madrid's Nash Ramirez, Ramirez I'm sorry, is tackled by West Hancock's Ray Gratalit and Nolan Vosky during Thursday's Class A state football semifinal game at the UNI Dome in Cedar Falls. West Hancock won 39-14 to advance to the November 16 championship game. Class 4A semifinals were set to be played later, later Thursday, including North Polk versus Lewis Central and Bon durant Ferrar versus Western Dubuque. Class 5A semifinals are Friday, and I assume there would be more of that in the sports section. Now here's a story. Iowa's Crisis Pregnancy Centers See Another Setback. Search for administrator again comes up empty. The story by Michaela Ram. Iowa has experienced another major roadblock in its effort to launch its state-funded network of crisis pregnancy centers. The Iowa Department of Health and Human Services has failed again to identify anyone that can manage the state's More Options for Maternal Support, or MOMS, program, a government uh, a Governor Kim Reynolds-backed proposal to provide state dollars to fund anti-abortion centers. The law passed by the GOP-majority Iowa legislature directed the state agency to find a nonprofit based in Iowa to serve as a program administrator of the MOMS program, overseeing the network of pregnancy resource centers and maintaining a record of the services provided to Iowans. But the state received no responsible bidders to its request for proposals that was released in July. As a result, state officials are rescinding its request for proposals the department announced this week. 
This is the state's second unsuccessful search for a mom's program administrator in the past year. The previous search, which garnered an application from one entity seeking to serve as program administrator, failed to yield any sufficiently responsive bids, state officials said. State officials have not said whether they plan to launch a third search for a program administrator. HHS spokesperson Sarah Ekstrand said in an email to the Register last month, until the program administrator contract is awarded, the agency will serve in the program administrator role. It is unclear what long-term impact this could have for Iowa's Moms Program, which is already seeking applications from pregnancy resource centers to apply for state funding. Critics say the state's second failed search for a qualified administrator underscores their concerns over funding anti-abortion crisis pregnancy centers. Senator Sarah Trone Garriott, a Democrat from West Des Moines, said in a statement, the so-called Moms Program was modeled on a Texas program that stole millions in taxpayer dollars for wildly inappropriate and illegal purposes. It's no surprise to learn that anti-fraud measures have prevented the Iowa program from moving forward, as no contractors have been able to meet the basic standards set forth in legislation. As a result, Governor Reynolds now wants to award contracts without following the required anti-fraud protections, the statement said. As part of the Iowa GOP's anti-abortion priorities, Lawmakers allocated $2 million in state funding over the last two legislative sessions for nonprofit facilities called Pregnancy Resource Centers. Also known as Crisis Pregnancy Centers, these facilities are often religiously affiliated organizations that encourage women to keep their pregnancies or consider adoption. These are not medical clinics, but some do offer free ultrasounds. Some, at most, offer counseling or donated items, such as diapers, baby clothes, car seats, and cribs without cost. There are an estimated 55 pregnancy resource centers across the state. Under the program, these centers would receive state funding to offer what the law describes as pregnancy support services. Lawmakers also directed the state to fund centers with fatherhood programming, directed at men involved with unintended pregnancies, such as parenting classes, or help for fathers to find employment. Proponents say the program will help Iowans overcome major hurdles faced during unintended pregnancies. Critics have denounced this program, saying these facilities falsely pose as legitimate clinical settings and often mislead their clients to dissuade them from seeking an abortion. According to the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, it is a common tactic for centers to use emotional man manipulation, including performing ultrasounds to, quote, shame pregnant people under the guise of informing, end quote. Trone Garriott said, right now, Iowans desperately need access to real reproductive care services. It is a violation of the public trust to waste Iowa tax dollars on fake clinics. It is unacceptable that our governor would bend the rules just to please her anti-choice political donors. The state has reopened the search for a mom's program administrator, had reopened the search for a mom's program administrator earlier this year, after the first search had failed to come up with sufficient applications to manage the program. 
The sole bid was from a new nonprofit called the Iowa Pregnancy Care Network. According to a letter sent by the state that was first obtained by Iowa Public Radio, the network failed to meet specific requirements laid out in the request for proposals issued by the state earlier this year. Among its deficiencies, the Iowa Pregnancy Care Network failed to provide an adequate plan that met specific data needs from Iowa's Health and Human Services Agency, the letter states. The Iowa Pregnancy Care Network is affiliated with the Texas Pregnancy Care Network, which has run a Texas program called Alternatives to Abortion that is similar to Iowa's Moms program. But the Texas program has been plagued with reports of fraud and misuse of millions in taxpayer dollars. In addition, there's little data on the program to track how the money is being spent and the program's outcomes for the individuals it is meant to aid. Pregnancy resource centers can now apply for some of the $2 million in state funding approved for their use under a new bidding process opened by the state earlier this month. The state plans to award funding to multiple centers across the state with total funds expected to be as much as $1 million annually. However, because funding is limited, state officials say centers selected for the program may be partially funded, depending on the request the state receives. HHS has said it will announce awards January 24th. Centers awarded funding are expected to start providing services approved under the state contract on February 28, according to the state. It is unclear how many pregnancy resource centers across the state plan to apply for state funding. Some center staff who spoke to the register say they have concerns about potential oversight attached to this funding. And the second story on today's front page has the headline, Family Leaders Vanderplatz Rebuffs the RNC and Says a Thanksgiving Forum is On. This story by Brianne Fannensteel, the chief political writer for The Register. Family Leader President and CEO Bob Vanderplatz said his organization will move forward with a planned Thanksgiving forum later this month, even as the Republican National Committee threatens to sanction presidential candidates who attend. The event, which the Christian Conservative Organization also hosted in the lead-up to the 2012 and 2016 Republican caucuses, is set to feature presidential candidates sitting around a table to engage in conversation with Vanderplatz. Vanderplatz told the Des Moines Register, These forums are not debates. This is more talking about who they are and what makes them tick, their worldview, and pretty much why they believe what they believe and why they believe they've prepared for such a time as this to lead. But the RNC Council's office disagreed, sending a letter to presidential campaigns at the end of October saying that their appearance at the family leader event would violate a pledge they made to not participate in any debate that isn't RNC-sanctioned. The letter said, It has come to the attention of the RNC Council's office that several Republican presidential candidates have been invited to participate in an open press event in Iowa in November, at which they would gather round the table to have a moderated, friendly, and open discussion with the issues. In other words, a debate. The RNC said any candidate who participates will be disqualified from taking part in any future Republican National Committee-sanctioned presidential debates. The RNC's third debate wrapped up in Miami this week, and a fourth is scheduled for December 6th in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. 
Iowa has often hosted a debate ahead of its first-in-the-nation caucuses, although the RNC has not said whether that will be the case again this cycle. Vanderplatz said, The family leader is not a Republican subsidiary. We don't go by the RNC's rules. We hold our own things, and then it's up to the candidates to determine if they want to show up or not. The event is not <clears throat> excuse me, a full cattle call open to all of the candidates, like some of the family leader's other events. Vanderplatz said three candidates previously confirmed that they would attend the Thanksgiving Forum. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, U.S. Senator Tim Scott, and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy. A spokesperson for Ramaswamy would not say whether the candidate still plans to attend, and a representative for DeSantis did not provide any comment. Vanderplatz noted that the event is the last major event scheduled so far in Iowa ahead of the January caucuses, and he said the format provides a unique perspective of the candidates, right as Iowans are getting serious about making their decisions. He said he doesn't currently have plans to alter the event's format. He said, we don't want a stump speech. Everybody's heard the stump speech before. Past events, he said, have been very revealing. And that's why I think the candidates who have participated in the past have believed they've been very important in the process. Former U.S. Senator and former presidential candidate Rick Santorum tweeted his support for the event. Santorum said, leave it to the RNC to thwart the one forum that shows candidates in the best possible light. Everyone sits at a table in a relaxed setting. No shots, just stories of faith, family, and country. It's a chance to see the authentic candidate. And we have one more story from the front section. Um, before we go on to Metro and Iowa, Emily's List endorses Bohannon in first district race against Miller Meeks. This story by Brian Fannensteel. Emily's List is wading into Iowa's congressional politics, backing first district Democratic candidate Christina Bohannon. The abortion rights group supports Democratic women running for office and is a major fundraising source. Jessica Mackler, the group's interim president, said in a statement, Christina Bohannon is ready to hit the ground running and get Iowa's first congressional district back on track. The contrast could not be more clear. Marianette Miller-Meeks is an anti-abortion extremist who spent her time in Congress working to take away Iowans' rights, and Bohannon is a pro-choice champion who will always defend our fundamental reproductive freedom, Mackler said. Bohannon, an uh, Iowa City law professor and former state legislator, so far is the only Democrat to enter the race. If she is the nominee, it will set up a rematch with Republican U.S. Representative Marianette Miller-Meeks in November 2024. Bohannon lost to Miller-Meeks in 2022 by nearly seven percentage points as Iowa Republicans claim victories up and down the midterm ballot. Bohannon has said she intends to talk about access to reproductive health care throughout her campaign, following the United States Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and Iowa Republicans' push for a six-week fetal heartbeat abortion ban. My view is that we should go back to Roe v. Wade, Bohannon said in an August interview, no more, no less. That is what people support. Miller Meeks has said in interviews she supports limits on abortions, with some exceptions. She has endorsed legislation banning abortions nationally at 15 weeks, 
with exceptions for rape, incest, or if the life of the mother is at risk. She has co-sponsored legislation protecting life from the moment of conception that does not include exceptions, but says women should not be prosecuted for the death of an unborn child. The Emily's List endorsement comes on the heels of a November 7 election that saw progressives win abortion-centered races across the country. Abortion rights supporters won an Ohio ballot measure, and the Democratic governor of Beet Red, Kentucky, held on to his office by campaigning on reproductive rights and painting his opponent as extremist. A Democrat won an open seat on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court after campaigning on his pledge to uphold abortion rights. And Democrats took full control of the Virginia State House, blocking Republicans from being able to pass new abortion restrictions. And we'll move to the Metro and Iowa section now. Three stories on the front page. Across the top, headline, Boys Town and Second Woman Reach Settlement. In the middle of the page, Central Iowa events to honor veterans. Veterans Day being tomorrow, but a lot of events are happening today because tomorrow is a Saturday. And on the bottom, Democrat Bacom to challenge Zach Nunn for Iowa's third district seat in the U.S. House. Let's start at the top of the page. Boys Town and a second woman reached settlement. Former resident at Omaha's renowned youth facility says she was sexually abused by a house parent. The story by Lee Rood of The Register. A second woman who sued Father Flanagan's boys' home in Omaha, Nebraska, over sexual abuse alleged by a house parent allegedly by a house parent at the youth home, has now reached a private settlement with the nonprofit group. 25-year-old Shaylin Nielsen said she could not comment on the confidential settlement reached after articles about her case in the Des Moines Register earlier this week. The first part of a two-part register investigation published November 5th examined how alleged sexual assaults and rapes at the iconic Omaha home are shielded from the public and have gone unreported to oversight agencies. Sitting in its own village on the west side of Omaha, Boys Town houses delinquent, foster, and privately placed youth from Iowa and other states. The village has its own security and police department, which repeatedly has refused to release to the register basic incident reports related to 12 alleged rape offenses on its campus in the last five years. Nielsen, one of several former Boys Town residents who have said they were sexually abused at the renowned youth home over decades, alleged that Sherdale Green, a Boys Town house parent who lived with her and other girls when she was 18, sexually assaulted her before she left Boys Town for college. Nielsen and former resident Taylor Weatherall, a 24-year-old who reached a private settlement in the same case in September, told the Register this summer they filed their lawsuits because they wanted to protect other children still living at Boys Town. Their lawsuit, filed by the Gooseman Law Firm, alleged that once the courts placed the girls at Boys Town, the home and its employees violated their duty to ensure the girls' safety. It also alleged that Boys Town was negligent in hiring a sexual predator to supervise teenage girls and that it failed to properly investigate and report the complaints of sexual misconduct to fire Green in a timely manner or follow child abuse mandatory reporting requirements under Nebraska law. Boys Town and Green have denied Nielsen and Weatherall's allegations. In a statement, the nonprofit group said, Boys Town reports all accusations to law enforcement and or Child Protective Services, two independent entities, 
and fully cooperates with their independent investigations. Our safety numbers reflect the fact that Boys Town actively encourages student reporting on campus, no matter the circumstance or degree of offense. At least two Boys Town employees have been convicted of having sex with youths housed at Boys Town in the last 10 years. In 2014, Nebraska's Department of Health and Human Services was notified of a sexual relationship between Robin Wood, a shift manager supervising other employees, and a 17-year-old under the guardianship of the state of Nebraska. Wood was convicted in 2015 for having sex with what was deemed a protected person. She was sentenced to five years of probation. And former House parent Jaime Rivera Jr., following a 2018 investigation, admitted that he had sex repeatedly with a 15-year-old ward from Texas, according to court records. Rivera was convicted of first-degree attempted sex abuse on a child, a felony. Boystown said this year it referred six of 12 rape cases reported over the last five years to the Douglas County Attorney's Office in Omaha. However, Rivera's was the only case prosecuted. Central Iowa events to honor veterans. Observances, ceremonies run today through Sunday and are open to all. And there is a photo here with a picture of the Iowa National Guard Army Band marching down the Grand Concourse of the Iowa State Fair in Des Moines on August 14. The story is by Victoria Reina Rodriguez. Across the nation, retired and active military personnel will be honored and celebrated this Veterans Day, November 11. Formerly known as Armistice Day, the holiday has been around since the end of World War I and in the 1930s. It was made into one of the uh, ten federal holidays currently recognized by the United States government in the 1930s. Although it was first established after World War I, Veterans Day is meant to honor veterans of all wars. Here are events you can attend in central Iowa to honor those who have served. The official State Veterans Day Observances. The Iowa Department of Veterans Affairs and Iowa Veterans Home are hosting multiple Veterans Day observances. In an event at the Iowa Veterans Cemetery, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds will be the honored guest, and this year's keynote speaker will be Major Sean T. Quinlan. The event is free and open to all. It is at the Iowa Veterans Cemetery, uh, 34024 Veterans Memorial Drive in Adele. It's at 8 a.m. on Friday, November 10th, which is, I guess, this morning. Um, a second event will take place at the Iowa Veterans Home featuring Rick F Fredrickson, a United States Marine Corps veteran, and retired KCCI TV and Iowa Public Radio journalist. It is at the... Iowa Veterans Home, 1301 Summit Street in Marshalltown. It is at 10.30 a.m. Um, today, Friday, November 10. Venues will host traditional in-person public ceremonies lasting about 45 to 60 minutes, as well as virtually recorded on Facebook at facebook.com slash Iowa Department of Veterans Affairs and the Grandview uh, Veterans Day Ceremony. It will host a short Ceremony at CJ's Place in the Henning Student Center to honor all veterans, followed by an opportunity to thank the veterans in your life. 
Flags will be available to display outside the Henning Student Center in honor of a veteran. Active service members are encouraged to wear their uniform to classes and the ceremony. It is at Grandview University, 1200 Grandview Avenue, Des Moines, and it is at noon uh, that today, Friday, November 10. And the Veterans Day Mountain Bike Ride. To honor Veterans Day, Central Iowa Trail Association is hosting a no-drop mountain bike ride through the Central Trails at Greenwood Park and Denman's Woods. A helmet is required to ride with the group. After, they will enjoy drinks at Food and Big Grove Brewery, 555 17th Street in Des Moines. Uh, meet at the parking lot behind the Des Moines Art Center, 4700 Grand Avenue in Des Moines, near the Rose Garden, when that is at 11 a.m. tomorrow, Saturday, November 11. And the, finally, the spar, a star-spangled salute. Watch the Iowa Military Veterans Band perform a traditional Veterans Day concert at the Des Moines Civic Center. This div- event is free and open to the public with general admissions seating. It is at the Des Moines Civic Center. It is at 2 p.m. Sunday, November 12. Also from the front page of the Metro and Iowa section, Democrat Bacom to challenge Zach Nunn for Iowa's third district seat. <clears throat> the story by Galen Bacarrier. Former U.S. Department of Agriculture official and veteran Lannon Bacom announced yesterday that he's running for Iowa's third U.S. House district, becoming the first Democrat to publicly challenge U.S. Representative Zach Nunn for a seat that was decided by about 2,000 votes last time. Bacom recently told the Des Moines Register that he's exploring a run for the seat. On Thursday morning, he made it official, sharing a video alongside endorsements from former Iowa Governor Tom Vilsack and State Auditor Rob Sand. Bacom says in his announcement video, We can all sense and feel our country is incredibly polarized. People are moving apart, and people are divided in their political camps. Nowhere is that more true than the U.S. Congress, and Zach Nunn is part of the problem. Bakam is the son of Taidam refugees from Laos and a native of Mount Pleasant. He enrolled in the Iowa National Guard at the age of 17 and served as a combat engineer in Afghanistan. He's worked in Iowa state government and for several other Iowa Democrats and worked on President Joe Biden's 2020 presidential campaign as deputy state director in Iowa. He has served several roles within the Department of Agriculture, most recently as Deputy Chief of Staff, as well as military veteran liaison. Bakam said in a statement, In Congress, I'll fight to lower costs for families, expand access to good-paying jobs right here in Iowa, and ensure seniors can retire with dignity. As a veteran who fought to protect our freedoms abroad, I will stand up here at home to protect women's reproductive freedoms. Every day, I will put Iowa first. Tom Vilsack, who heads the U.S. Department of Agriculture, endorsed Bacom in his personal capacity alongside his wife, Christy. Vilsack said, We have had the pleasure of knowing and working alongside Lannon for almost two decades, and we know that he is a deeply proud Iowan who will be a thoughtful, committed congressman for the 3rd District. Rob Sand, the sole Democrat to hold a statewide office in Iowa, he's the state auditor, also backed Bacom, saying, Throughout his decades of service, Lannon Bacom has shown his commitment to serving the people of Iowa, and he's exactly the leader we need in Congress. He is the best candidate to take on Zach Nunn and deliver real results for Iowans. 
Vilsack and Sands' endorsements are a mark of confidence in Bacom, the first publicly announced Democratic candidate in what could become a contested primary one year out from Election Day. Two other Democrats, Melissa Vine and Tracy Lyman, have filed paperwork to run for the seat but have yet to make a formal announcement or report any fundraising. Zach Nunn won the seat in a narrow 2022 race, defeating Democratic U.S. Representative Cindy Axney by just more than 2,000 votes as Republicans swept Iowa's congressional slate. Democrats remain optimistic they can flip the district, which includes Polk and Dallas counties, back to blue. It's one of 31 that the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee has identified as vulnerable in the 2023-2024 cycle. A couple of short stories here. Iowa's Viridian Credit Union makes money's best in Midwest list. Viridian Credit Union has new recognition to boast about in the competition between Iowa's leading financial institutions. Money Magazine, in an annual evaluation, named Viridian among the top five banks and credit unions in the Midwest for 2023-24, specifically for having the best rates. The Waterloo-based credit union, with at least 10 Des Moines metro locations, is the only Iowa-headquartered institution to make the list. The one rated best overall in the Midwest, Wintrust Bank of Illinois, has a mortgage office in West Des Moines. According to the National Credit Union Service Organization, Viridian ranks second in assets in Iowa to North Liberty's Green State Credit Union, which also has several Des Moines metro locations and ahead of uh, Dupaco Community Credit Union of Dubuque, which has a location in Grimes. Also this year, a Forbes ranking of the best credit unions in each state included Dupaco in fourth state, in Iowa and Viridian in fifth, with Community First of Ottumwa, a center of Bettendorf, and Community Choice of Johnston in first, second, and third places, respectively. Green State, formerly University of Iowa Community Credit Union, has made the list in previous years. Woman charged with killing son may use insanity defense. This story by Noel Aviz Grancy. A walkie mother charged with killing her baby may use an an insanity defense, new court documents show. Yemisi Kito, 27, is charged with first-degree murder and child endangerment, resulting in death. In a court filing November 2nd, her attorney states the defense may rely on insanity and or diminished responsibility and on testimony from a doctor in her trial that is scheduled to begin December 11. First responders were called to the home on August 31st around 9.56 a.m. and found a one-year-old without a pulse. He was not able to be revived and was pronounced dead at the scene, according to the criminal complaint. While at the scene, several bottles of bleach and other cleaning substances allegedly were found around the baby, court filing said. Officials alleged the smell of bleach was strong and the floor around the baby was wet. In her interview with officers, Kito allegedly said she poured bleach and other chemicals on the baby's face and suffocated him with the purpose of killing him. Uh, the complaint said Kito did commit acts of torture and cruelty which were intended to cause serious injury. Kito was arrested and charged on September 15. Court documents show she is using a French translator for her proceedings. And as we move to national and international news now, uh, one breaking story out of Washington that I'll read a little bit from the New York Times this morning. 
President Biden and China's Xi to seek to stabilize relations in a California meeting that's coming up. President Biden and President Xi Jinping of China plan to meet in California on Wednesday of next week for a discussion that Mr. Biden's advisors say is meant to stabilize relations, even as it features a host of topics on which the two fiercely competitive countries disagree. The Biden administration, which formally announced the meeting on Friday morning this morning, said the two leaders would have the highly choreographed discussion as they attended the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in San Francisco, known as APEC. In a call with reporters on Thursday, two senior advisors to Mr. Biden said the meeting was intended to be wide-ranging, with Mr. Biden prepared to bring up issues including Taiwan, election interference, the war in Ukraine, and the war between Israel and Hamas. Taiwan, a self-ruled island claimed by China, is set to hold elections early next year. With, uh, an official said Mr. Biden would seek to present Mr. Xi with clarity, meaning that the United States expects Beijing not to interfere and is concerned that it might. Mr. Biden is also expected to warn Mr. Xi against interfering in U.S. elections. The advisors, who spoke on the condition of anonymity to preview the meeting, did not provide specifics on its location, citing security concerns. The meeting will take place almost one year to the day after Mr. Biden and Mr. Xi met during the Group of 20 summit in Bali, Indonesia, another rigidly planned diplomatic affair that took place amid fears over rising Chinese aggression toward Taiwan and steep competition between Washington and Beijing over military and technology advances. The two have not spoken since, and the intervening year has severely tested relations. A Chinese spy balloon that crossed over the United States before an American fighter jet shot it down off the coast of South Carolina set off a diplomatic crisis in February. And more recently, tensions have flared over matters such as Chinese espionage and U.S. restrictions on technology exports in China. Strains remain and will be addressed, Mr. Biden's advisors say, but this year Chinese and American officials have also emphasized the importance of strengthening ties between the world's two largest economies. The Biden administration has already sent several top officials, including Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, and Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo to China this year to try to make clear that while the United States wants to protect national security, it does not seek to sever economic ties. Police on alert as hate reports surge. This story from USA Today, Christopher Can. Civil rights groups say threats against Jewish and Muslim people are being reported in staggering numbers across the country, putting law enforcement agencies on high alert and instilling fear into the lives of those being targeted and attacked. Several colleges from the San Francisco Bay Area to upstate New York have seen increasing anti-Semitic and Islamophobic incidents since the start of the Israel-Hamas war last month, and police patrols and surveillance have been set up outside mosques and synagogues across the country. After Paul Kessler, a 69-year-old Jewish man, died on Monday from a head injury he sustained in an altercation at dueling pro-Palestinian and pro-Israel demonstrations in Southern California, the local sheriff announced increased patrols around Muslim and Jewish houses of worship. In late October, top FBI officials held a call with more than 
2,400 heads of local police departments, including those on college campuses, urging them to share information they may gather on potential threats, reported the Washington Post. During a U.S. Senate Homeland Security Committee hearing last week, FBI Director Christopher Wray said the agency's most immediate concern is violent extremists, individuals or small group, who may draw inspiration from the events in the Middle East to carry out attacks against Americans going about their daily lives. During the Senate hearing last week, Ray pointed to two incidents that have the FBI, state and local law enforcement agencies on high alert. Last week, authorities arrested Sohab Abiyash, a 20-year-old Jordanian, I'm sorry, Jordanian citizen living in Houston, who had studied how to build bombs and posted online about his support for killing Jews, Ray said. Ray also mentioned the arrest of 71-year-old Joseph Suba, who was charged with fatally stabbing six-year-old Wadia al-Fayoum and and wounding his mother, Hian Shaheen, at their Illinois home in October. Kazuba was the family's landlord and reportedly had no problems with them before. According to text messages between Shaheen and the boy's father, Kazuba yelled, you, Mus- you Muslims must die during the attack. More recently, a U.S. Postal Service worker who was in full uniform was walking up to a residence in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, to deliver mail when 47-year-old Kenneth Pinckney rode past her on a bike and told her to go back to her country, court records show. Then he walked up to the woman, who was unnamed in court records, ripped off her her hijab, and proceeded to punch and slap her in the face, according to an arrest affidavit. On Friday, Ruba Amalgaheth, 34, drove her Chevy Impala uh, into the Israelite school of universal and practical knowledge, according to court records. Investigators said she referred to the building as an, quote, Israel school. Meanwhile, in Minnesota, police are investigating an incident at a Minneapolis gas station where an assailant reportedly pulled out a small knife and began attacking a Muslim woman. The Council on American-Islamic Relations, the nation's largest Muslim Civil Liberties Organization on Tuesday called for a bias probe into the incident. CARE Chicago, that's C-A-I-R Chicago, wrote last month that the nonprofit organization has received dozens of threatening calls and emails a day since the start of the war and has recorded an influx of hate victims, including Muslim women who have been taunted and targeted with slurs in public places. Representative Ilhan Omar, Democrat of Minnesota, one of the few Muslim members of Congress, told NBC News she fears her life may be in danger, citing repeated death threats she has received since the war broke out on October 7. The outlet reported one message in which the Congresswoman was called terrorist Muslim. Another message claimed that there was a vigilante group spying on Omar and her children. The Anti-Defamation League reported a total of 312 anti-Semitic incidents October 7 through 23rd, of which 190 were directly linked to the war in Israel and Gaza. 
During the same period in 2022, ADL received reports of 64 incidents, including four that will, were Israel-related. John Anthony Miller, 43, was arrested by federal authorities on October 26 and charged with threatening Senator Jackie Rosen, Democrat of Nevada, with repeated anti-Semitic phone messages, including one that said, We're going to finish what Hitler started according to court records. An October 19 message accused Israelis of killing Christians in the West Bank and said Rosen would burn in hell for her crimes, according to court records. In his opening remarks to the Senate committee last week, Ray said the Israel-Hamas war has raised the threat of an attack against Americans in the United States to a whole other level. Ray said, this is not a time for panic, but it is a time for vigilance. You often hear the expression, if you see something, say something. That has never been more true than now. And on the front page of The Nation and World Extra in today's register, this headline, Senator Manchin will not seek re-election. Story is uh, Dateline Charleston, West Virginia by the Associated Press. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia announced yesterday that he will not seek re-election in 2024, giving Republicans a prime opportunity to pick up a seat in the heavily GOP state. The 76-year-old Manchin said he made the decision after months of deliberation and long conversations with his family. He said, I believe in my heart of hearts that I have accomplished what I set out to do for West Virginia. I have made one of the toughest decisions of my life, and decided that I will not be running for re-election to the United States Senate. But what I will be doing is traveling the country and speaking out to see if there is an interest in creating a movement to mobilize the middle and bring Americans together. His decision to step down, while not totally unexpected, severely hampers Democratic hopes of holding on to the coal country seat and marks the end of an era for West Virginia, which voted reliably blue for decades before flipping to red and becoming one of former President Donald Trump's most loyal states. For the last few years, Manchin has been the only Democrat elected to statewide office in West Virginia. But his statement also fuels growing speculation that Manchin harbors national political ambitions. In recent months, he has teased a 2024 presidential campaign, possibly as an independent candidate, although it's unclear what his voter base would be. Along those lines, a group pushing for Manchin to partner with retiring Utah Senator Mitt Romney to seek a a third-party presidential bid filed paperwork to form a formal draft committee with the Federal Election Committee on Thursday. Manchin's announcement also reinforces the challenges that Democrats will have in keeping their 51 to 49 Senate majority. Even before Manchin said he was stepping down, 2024 was shaping up to be a tough election cycle for Senate Democrats. The party will be forced to defend 23 seats, including three held by independents and three held by Democrats in states won by Trump in 2020, compared to just 10 seats for Republicans. Republican challengers have long been clamoring for Manchin's seat in West Virginia. GOP Representative Alex Mooney jumped into the race less than two weeks after winning his fifth term in the House in November of last year. Hugely popular two-term Republican Governor Jim Justice joined the Senate race earlier this year and was endorsed by Trump, only increasing the challenges for Manchin as he considered whether to seek re-election. 
Jim Justice noted in a statement yesterday that he and the senator have not always agreed on policy or politics, he said, but we're both lifelong West Virginians who love this state beyond belief, and I respect him and I thank him for his many years of public service. The draft committee pushing a Manchin-Romney ticket is planning to launch publicly next week, along with a new website titled America Back on Track. That's according to a person with direct knowledge of the committee who spoke to the Associated Press on the condition of anonymity. Initially, the draft effort plans to raise $1 million for a budget-to-commission polling to show that there is a path to victory for a Romney-Manchin ticket as part of the no-labels movement, according to the person. Romney and Manchin have not signed on to this effort, the person said, but the group expects to build out presidential campaign infrastructure for Romney and Manchin and ultimately court no-labels delegates to win the nomination at its March 2024 convention in Dallas. No-labels praised Manchin as a tireless voice for America's common-sense majority. The organization said we will make a decision by early 2024 about whether we will nominate a unity presidential ticket and who will be on it. Manchin, a conservative Democrat, was both a critical vote and a constant headache for his party in the first two years of President Joe Biden's term. When the Senate was split 50-50 in President Kamala Harris's tie-breaking vote, Manchin leveraged his political power to shape legislation to his liking. Along with Arizona Senator Kristen Sinema, a Democrat who switched to an independent after last year's midterms, Manchin helped water down much of Biden's social spending agenda. He has frequently clashed with members of his own party over his strong support for coal and other fossil fuels. Days before last year's midterms, he blasted Biden for being cavalier and divorced from reality after vowing to shutter coal-fired power plants and rely more heavily on wind and solar energy in the future. He demanded a public apology from Biden, and the White House acquiesced by issuing a statement saying the president regrets it if anyone hearing these remarks took effect. Biden issued a statement yesterday praising Manchin for his decades of public service. For more than 40 years as a state legislator, a secretary of state, a governor, and a senator, Joe Manchin has dedicated himself to serving the people of his beloved West Virginia, the White House statement said. During my time as vice president and now as president, Joe and I have worked together to get things done for hardworking families, Biden said. Joe Manchin's announcement comes just a year after Democrats increased their Senate majority to 51-49 by flipping a Republican-held seat in Pennsylvania. The practical effect of that victory was giving Democrats the ability to pass bills while losing one vote within their caucus, zapping Manchin's power to single-handedly thwart some of his party's priorities. Manchin regained some of that influence after Kristen Sinema switched parties, though she made clear that she would not caucus with Republicans. Sinema is also up for re-election in 2024, but she has not yet announced her plans. Manchin entered the Senate after winning a special election in 2010 following the death of Robert Byrd. He won re-election in both 2012 and 2018, with the latter campaign his toughest in terms of politics. He defeated Republican State Attorney General Patrick Morrissey by just over three percentage points. Judith? All right. Um, let me see here. Election offices are sent fentanyl and other substances. This uh, story released by the Associated Press by Christina A. Cassidy, Jean Johnson, and Ed Comenda from Washington, D.C.
Authorities were hunting Thursday for whoever sent suspicious letters, including some containing fentanyl, to elections offices in at least five states this week, delaying the counting of ballots in some local races in the latest instance of threats faced by election workers around the country. The letters were sent to elections offices in the presidential battlegrounds of Georgia and Nevada, as well as California, Oregon, and Washington, with some being intercepted before they arrived. Four of the letters contained fentanyl, the FBI and U.S. Postal Inspection Service reported in a statement to elections officials Thursday. The statement said law enforcement is working diligently to intercept any additional letters before they are delivered. The Pierce County Auditor's Office in Tacoma, Washington, released images of the letter it received, showing it had been postmarked in Portland, Oregon, and read in part, End Elections Now. In Seattle, King County Elections Director Julie Wise said that letter appeared to be the same one her office got, and it was very similar to one King County received during the August primary, which also contained fentanyl. Among the offices that appeared to be targeted was Fulton County in Georgia, which includes Atlanta and is the largest voting jurisdiction in one of the nation's most important presidential swing states. Authorities were working to intercept the letter. In the meantime, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger said officials were sending the overdose reversal drug naloxone to the office as a precaution. Raffensperger, a Republican, said this is domestic terrorism and it needs to be condemned by anyone that holds elected office and anyone that wants to hold elective office anywhere in America. In California, the United States Postal Service intercepted two suspicious envelopes that were headed to election facilities in Los Angeles and Sacramento. Authorities in Lane County, Oregon, which includes the University of Oregon, were investigating a piece of mail that arrived at the local election office Wednesday. No one who came in contact with it had experienced any negative health effects, said Devin Ashbridge, spokeswoman for the Lane County Elections Office in Eugene. The incident prompted officials to close the office and delayed an afternoon pickup of ballots. Ashbridge declined to provide further details. Someone attempted to terrorize our election staff, and that is not okay, Ashbridge said. On Wednesday, authorities in Washington state said four county election offices had to be evacuated as election workers were processing ballots cast in Tuesday's election, delaying vote counting. Election offices in King, Skagit, Spokane, and Pierce counties received envelopes containing powders. Local law enforcement officials said the substances in King and Spokane counties field tested positive for fentanyl. In at least one other case, the substance was baking soda. Pierce County Auditor Linda Farmer released images of the envelope and letter her office received. The letter contained a warning about the vulnerability of ballot drops and read, End elections now. Stop giving power to the right that they don't have. We are in charge now and there is no more need for them. The letter featured an anti-fascist symbol, a progress pride flag, and a pentagram. While the symbols have sometimes been associated with leftist politics, they also have been used by conservative figures to label and stereotype the left, and the sender's political leanings were unclear. Elections offices in two Washington counties, King and Oconagon, 
also received suspicious envelopes while processing ballots during the August primary, and the letter sent to King County tested positive for traces of fentanyl. These letters remain under investigation by the U.S. Postal Inspection Service and the FBI. Washington Secretary of State Steve Hobbs called the incidents in his state acts of terrorism to threaten our elections. White House spokeswoman Olivia Dalton said the Biden administration was aware of the investigation. We are grateful for the election and poll workers who served this week to ensure the security of our democratic processes. Fentanyl, an opioid that can be 50 times as powerful as the same amount of heroin, is driving an overdose crisis deadlier than any the United States has ever seen, as it is pressed into pills or mixed into other drugs. Briefly touching fentanyl cannot cause an overdose, and researchers have found that the risk of fatal overdose from accidental exposure is low. Jean-Marie Perron, uh, director of the Center for Addiction Medicine and Policy at the University of Pennsylvania, said studies simulating exposure from opening envelopes containing powders showed that very little, if any, of the powder becomes aerosolized to cause toxicity through inhalation. She noted that factory workers in manufacturing facilities often wear some level of protective equipment, but even incidental nasal exposure has not been found to cause toxic, toxic, I'm sorry, toxicity in those workers. Peron said, we have really good evidence that it would not be exposed through the skin or through inhalation. It was not immediately clear how authorities came to suspect that a letter might have been sent to Georgia's biggest election office. Raffensperger said the state alerted all 159 of its counties of the possible threat Wednesday, but believes only Fulton County is being targeted. It is the latest disruption since the 2020 election to the offices that oversees voting in and around Atlanta. Fulton County Commission Chairman Rob Pitts, speaking at a news conference Thursday with Raffensperger, said the county's election workers had been under threat since at least when two of them were singled out following the 2020 presidential election, with then-Republican President Donald Trump, Attorney Rudolph Giuliani, and others falsely alleging that election workers were stuffing ballots to aid Democrats. Democrat Joe Biden narrowly won the state. Part of the Fulton County prosecution that indicted Trump, Giuliani, and 17 others includes criminal cr charges focusing on statements and acts made against election workers. Pitt said, um, an elected Democrat said, there are people out there who want to do harm to our workers and want to disrupt, interrupt, the flow of democracy and free, open, and transparent elections, and we are prepared for it. Pitt said he believes that in 2024, Georgia's most populous county will be the focal point of election scrutiny. So this was a good trial run for us, I hate to say it, he said. Many election offices across the United States have taken steps to increase the security of their buildings and boost protections for workers amid an onslaught of harassment and threats following the 2020 election and the false claims that it was rigged. It is a sad reality that election officials are still facing threats, said David Becker, a former attorney in the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division, who works with election officials through the nonprofit Center for Election Innovation and Research. Becker said, while it may be unlikely this attack would cause serious damage, 
It seems clearly designed to terrorize the public servants in these offices who run elections. Hollywood scrambles to get back to work. Stars and politicians react to the strike ending. This story by the Associated Press. Hollywood jumped into planning mode yesterday at the news of a tentative agreement between striking actors and the major entertainment companies. After 118 days of most productions shut down and most stars unable to promote projects, publicists, studios, and award strategists went into hyperdrive, plotting out how to best use their newly available talent for what's left of the year and the awards season. Just hours after the tentative agreement was announced, the Marvel star Iman Vellani was already being offered to the press for interviews. The Walt Disney Company movie, which cost more than $200 million to produce, opens this weekend with Showtime starting as early as Thursday afternoon. Searchlight Pictures also started actively planning things for Michael Fassbender, who stars in Taiki Watiti's Next Goal Wins, uh, which is out next week. One of the top priorities for the industry is getting actors back on set. Whether for major blockbusters like Gladiator 2 or Deadpool 3, to try to salvage the 2024 movie release calendar that's already been impacted by the six-month stretch during which writers and actors were striking. Others were scrambling to kickstart promotion for holiday movie blockbusters, with Timothy Chalamet now able to talk about Wonka and Jason Momoa on the hook for Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. Both had been announced as the next two Saturday Night Live hosts before the agreement was reached. Awards season strategists will also be looking at schedules as studios and publicists try to make up for lost time in telling the stories of their Oscar and Emmy hopefuls. Although the agreement still must be approved by Screen Actors Guild, American Federation of Television and Radio Artist members, there was widespread relief that the standoff would not continue into 2024. President Joe Biden applauded the agreement, saying that collective bargaining works. He said, when both sides come to the table to negotiate in earnest, they can make businesses stronger and allow workers to secure pay and benefits that help them raise their families and retire with dignity. Biden continued, SAG-AFTRA members will have the final say on this contract, but the sacrifices they've made will ensure a better future for them, their families, and all workers who deserve a fair share of the value they helped create. California Governor Gavin Newsom said that the tentative agreement will benefit our economy statewide and kickstart a new wave of exciting projects. Newsom added, I'm thankful that we can now get this iconic industry back to work, not only for our writers and actors, but also the more than two million workers who power our world-class entertainment sector. Simu Liu, who co-starred in Barbie, wrote on X, formerly Twitter, that he was proud of SAG for continuing to fight for the livelihood of every actor. He wrote, as someone who used to live below the poverty line, hauled ass to auditions and struggled to live, I have experienced firsthand how these things matter. Bravo and see you on set. Albert Brooks, also on X, wrote that he could finally tell people to watch the documentary about him. His friend Rob Reiner directed Albert Brooks' Defending My Life, which premieres Saturday on HBO and Max. Brooks said, I can't wait for you to see it. I couldn't say a word until now. Octavia Spencer wrote on Instagram that she's ready to work now that the strike is over and that she was proud to stand in solidarity uh, solidarity with all SAG members over the last 118 days. 
Abbott Elementary creator and star Quinta Brunson wrote, We're very back in her Instagram account. Brunson's writing team had already been back in the room, but the strike suspension clears the way for filming now. Some, like Justine Bateman, were a little more cautious. Let's look at the terms first, she wrote on X. That's Justine Bateman, sorry. The holidays will surely be busy for Hollywood's top actors, especially awards hopefuls. Several contenders have had interim agreements that have allowed stars to do press, like Priscilla and Ferrari, but others will be starting fresh with their actors hitting the campaign trail, including Bradley Cooper's Leonard Bernstein film, Maestro, with Carrie Mulligan. Venice winner Poor Things with Emma Stone and Mark Ruffalo. TIFF winner American Fiction with Jeffrey Wright, Ridley Scott's Napoleon with Joaquin Phoenix, and The Color Purple. Others are already in theaters or streaming, but can now play catch-up too, like Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon with Leonardo DiCaprio, Lily Gladstone and Robert De Niro, Alexander Payne's The Holdovers with Paul Giamatti, and Iad with Annette Bening and Jodie Foster.